Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. It's uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving. I hope you had a wonderful day with uh, family and friends. Uh, This used to be a day, oh, 15 years ago, I remember, um, there would be local news coverage with helicopters um, going around the large malls in the valley and even, even, even Metro Center Mall, which is now about to be torn down, I guess, um, uh, looking at uh, parking capacity and all sorts of stuff like that. None of that anymore. None of that at all. However, I have deleted over 100 advertising emails from my inbox this morning. So instead of getting in the car and driving to a mall, uh, now you spend most of your day deleting unwanted emails from your inbox um, on your various email addresses. That's, that's what today is. And of course, it's a, it's a late, uh, late start on uh, the Christmas season, uh, late, in the, late in the month of, of November. And that means that next weekend, beginning a week from tonight, Lord willing, uh, I will be, oh, hello, just everything just turned off over here. So uh, just, just now starting up computers over there or something? We're all fine now? Uh-huh. Sure. Okay. Um, someone's just just getting with things. I won't mention who. So um, anyway, uh, next week, starting at this time at Covenant of Grace Church in St. Charles, we will be, ironically, uh, redoing what we did last year. That's the first time we've ever done anything like that, but I think everyone understands that much has changed since uh, December of 2019. There has been a tremendous amount of development in regards to our own society, uh, the advancement of the woke church. I was just thumbing through some uh, tweets. There was a... There was one especially, there was one video especially, uh, that was primarily, uh, you know, I had, I had seen this when it, start, it hit yesterday or day before yesterday, uh, where a particular individual was uh, preaching about the gospel. This, um, uh, let me see here, uh, there was some going back and forth. Reverend Dottie Lewis, um, and he was preaching about how the, the whole gospel includes uh, economic uh, aspects and economic um, restoration. And I remember listening to this going, you know, if, if the early church actually believed that, then the early church would have had to have been a political, economic, uh, revolutionary movement. And so when people converted to the faith, they would have been, I don't know, um, not only demanding their freedom from, because many of, so many of the early Christians were themselves slaves. And of course, it, it was chattel slavery, it just wasn't race-based, 
slavery. Um, all sorts of people. I mean, you can sell your you could sell yourself into slavery in that context to be able to eat. If you were in a situation with uh, famine and uh, ravages of war, whatever else it might have been. Anyway, uh, that's what the the gospel would have resulted in, would have been even more uh, divided, uh, even a more divided society, a more divided church. And so I, I, I listened to, to this type of language, and I, the only comment I made, I made one comment on Twitter when it first came out, and it was basically, having taught church history for all these years, I would simply say that the... Uh, the early believers would stare uncomprehendingly at this gentleman and what it is he has to say. Well, there are lots of folks that are defending that and calling it the gospel of the kingdom. So now the gospel of the kingdom uh, is a neo-Marxist message as well. It's just... Oh. Anyway, um, this kind of thing has happened, and so... There is a need to uh, discuss these things. That's what we'll be doing uh, Friday night, uh, all day Saturday. Saturday's a Saturday's a long day, uh, all day Saturday. And then I will be uh, doing Sunday school and uh, the morning service on Sunday morning. Probably not on that topic, though. The uh, thing that we send out or that they send out has it 4th through 6th. I'll be there the 4th through the 6th, but uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I haven't decided yet what I'm going to be doing that morning. Sometimes, to be honest with you, I don't decide till that morning. Uh, there have been a couple times I've decided as I walked into the uh, into the room what I was going to do that morning. Um, but uh, that will be at Covenant Grace Church in St. Charles, Missouri, and this will be our 20th year. Uh, doing this, the poor folks, I've told them they really need to find themselves a much better speaker, a much more exciting one. Some Somebody would pack the place out, you know, uh, maybe could speak on on uh, <coughs> prophecy or something, you know, and the identification of, uh, has anyone come up with the Joe Biden is the Antichrist uh, numerology yet? Because they do it for everybody else. I've seen it for everybody else uh, from... My the first person I remember personally uh, to get the add up the name to six 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 thing was Henry Kissinger, and he's still alive. That's the amazing thing. He's like about one hundred and forty three, but he's he's still alive, and that's starting to make me wonder a little bit about how to interpret Revelation myself because he there is something in Revelation about something that can't be killed or something. I think so. Maybe that that's Henry Kissinger. I'm not sure, but. I mean, I I thought Henry Kissinger was old when I was young. And so how old does he have to be now? I mean, that's sort of scary. That's sort of, you know, put a head on a different body to keep the thing going type, uh, creepy type stuff. So anyway, um, we will be doing that this weekend. And believe you me, um, that's probably going to be the last traveling for a very, very, very long time. Um, as it is uh, just so obvious uh, that uh, you're going to have to um, buy into these programs, and I bet you it's going to cost money. Uh, 
Somebody's going to be making money. Everybody's making money. Um, you're going to have to buy into these programs uh, to provide these um, health clearance stuff. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt that some of the stuff I already have will buy into it, uh, to where you can uh, travel internationally and probably, I would assume, even uh, within country. And uh, I understand that uh, New York and some other places are actually setting up um, roadblocks and uh, checking people uh, as to whether you're supposed to be entering in. To those areas, uh, even uh, they, they were doing it over the holidays. and whew. So as far as traveling goes, <laughs> now, once we have a functional studio, we're getting there. We're getting close. Uh, once we have a functional studio, then uh, not only do we look at uh, scheduling debates and stuff like that, but that's when we will have to start setting up a schedule. And if you're... Your particular fellowship has a um, desire to engage certain topics and to do it. There, it's not the same as being there. But uh, if you can have interaction, if you can have questions and have conversation and then personalize it to your particular area, um, that's that's a that's a great way to do things, and so we'll eventually, I would imagine, we'll have to put something up on the website or something uh, about putting together a, a schedule and uh, doing that kind of thing. It's something we've talked about doing for a long, long time. Now we'll have uh, we're supposed to have the stuff to be able to do that um, and uh, be able to um, offer a range of topics from. Translational issues to, you know, the various groups we've dealt with, um, issues like that. And uh, yes, sir. I was just going to chime in a couple of items here along the lines that, first of all, I've gotten a number of requests that kind of parallel the, the studio project, which I've decided that the name for the studio will be the 4K studio. Brilliant. You didn't run that by me. Brilliant, huh? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Not really, yeah. But um, uh, when you're off traveling around, I'm going to see if I can't have some time. I'm not going to be off traveling around. Next week. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can't make some time to do one of my technical videos and go through how to do um, – uh, what am I thinking here um, – where we push the the website out. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. I am drawing a blank. I hate words that suddenly escape me. You turn sixty and everything disappears. <laughs> okay, but um, you didn't tell me about this beforehand, so I can't. I help was you. just I thinking about you made about. me think about it, and it's like, oh, there. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm gonna try to do a couple of technical videos showing people how to do um, not IRC. Why do I keep thinking IRC? Zoom? What's that? Zoom. Um. Not Zoom, but anyway, a couple of technical videos just kind of going through. Um, uh, this is sort of entertaining, I actually. know. You're <laughs> I'm doing a Joe Biden thing here, man. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. 
And and the more I talk about it, the worse it gets. Yes. Um, but you're gonna do some technical videos about something technical. Yeah, something technical that has something to do with the studio <laughs> and and computers. Yeah. And the internet. Yeah. Right. I am. Um, and so RSS feeds. That's the that's what I'm looking for. RSS feeds. I'm getting a lot of inquiries. People going, "What is RSS? How do I oh. do it?" And they don't. They're they're not realizing how to get our stuff on an RSS. And so I want to just kind of walk through that where it's up on the screen and people can use that as a guideline and basically do do that sort of thing. And at the same time, I use RSS in a lot of ways. Parler or Parler works kind of like an RSS. I've actually had a little bit of a back and forth with their technical people about trying to do more with that. And interact with the RSS feeds so that you can set up the stuff that you want to read from various sources. Like I, I tap into Newsmax, I tap into Epic Times, I tap into uh, Doug Wilson's feed, uh, stuff like that. So those are the kind of things that we want to be doing because I think we're we're going to be pushing towards Parlay, we're going to be pushing towards MeWe, we're going to be pushing towards RSS. And we need to get our audience start to adapt to that. I think the, we need to, you know, help them with the paradigm shift, if you will. So. Yeah, well, um, you know, my biggest concern is just being able to, um, you know, it's it's sort of like letting your family know, okay, when everything goes dark, this is where we meet, or right. uh, type of a situation. Well, and no, that's exactly When everything what... goes dark uh, on, on the Internet, uh, this is how we, we try to get around it or, you know, we, yeah, we, so. we we have some guys that are in the midst of really thinking out of the box, uh, in case YouTube decides to get crazy on us. Uh, in case I mean we, we're making some moves on Facebook and and Parlay as it is, but you know we need people to start moving over there. One of the things that I saw somebody suggest last night, and I went, you know what, I need to do that from now on. The first posts of the shows need to be on Parlay and MeWe. I'll eventually I'll get around to the other ones, but the first the priority needs to be those. And so, if you say so, I say so. If you say so, so. if you say so. The, those, I mean, I those were the thoughts that were on my mind, escaped me, and came back. Yes, and people on uh, online are already mocking you. I'm sure they are. There's already a, very a picture of us watching <laughs> watching Rich's brain go to oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, absolutely uh, no, uh, no mercy or grace out there at all. Uh, just, just you, <laughs> that's great. I, I blame Thanksgiving fog. I'm going with it. And that's you can my blame story. Whatever you want. It. We didn't get in any Thanksgiving fog, thanks to me. Uh, that's for sure. That was uh, that was that was ugly. Okay. Anyway, um, so uh, let's. Make sure everybody knows that um, eventually uh, we will be looking at uh, replacing time traveled with uh, time uh, uh, in the studio to do special seminars for for churches and things like that, which, by the way, can be done without actually using your facility, though it's more fun, I think, to be together and have the fellowship, but... A lot of folks uh, would also might maybe find it to be useful to uh, be able to have a seminar-type situation without having to be in the same building, just simply because of um, lockdowns and things like that. So 
keep an eye out, uh, keep an eye out for them. All right. Anyway, uh, I do have on the the screen um, some texts that um, I want to look at with you uh, today on a on a biblical level. So if you've got your Bible, if you have your uh, your Jeffrey Rice rebind available. <laughs> Um, I made someone very happy uh, a couple of months ago. I I strongly suggested to uh, my good brother John Cooper of Skillet that he uh, get in touch with uh, Jeffrey Rice. And uh, so that particular project came to completion. I saw pictures of it uh, over the weekend and uh, hopefully early next week. Um, John will will be the proud and happy and very satisfied owner of uh, his own brand new uh, post tenebrous Lux Rebind, and uh, that'll that'll make the holiday season start off just right. I saw pictures of it. He sort of went with the class. Well, well, you you, it's easy to guess what what John went with. Uh, it's your classic black. Uh, obviously, with all sorts of nice stuff about it, but you know he's not going to go for he's not going to go for red or something like that. He's gonna he's going to do the the classic black type thing, and he did so. But you can grab your uh, your Bible or whatever it is. Um, there's actually a relationship of all of these texts, and I hope you'll stick with me uh, to to consider these texts. And we have talked about some of them, but I'm going to sort of tie them together a bit. When you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you have extensive history with dealing with the Mormons, you automatically think about uh, the King James rendering of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, do I have? Yes, I do. Hold on just one second here. Get out! I was I was actually talking about this. This very this is the very Bible I was talking about um, uh, on Twitter. Oh, good grief! <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking. This is the first Bible I I read all the way through in high school, and I'm I'm just sitting here going, "How did I read this?" And of course, I read it. You know, laying in bed with bad lighting, which is probably why I can't read it now. But um, and I look at all the underlining and marking and all the rest of this type of stuff, and I can just barely read this now. It's it's terrible. But First uh, Corinthians chapter eight is a text that in the King James version. Uh, says, uh, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So this is the... King James rendering, and if you know your Mormon friends, or maybe if you don't, um, what you need to know is that they look at 1 Corinthians 8, 5, 
and they will say that the rendering, uh, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, and then the key is the paraphrastic phrase, the, the parentheses, as there are gods many and lords many. Now, if you don't have experience in dealing with Mormonism, you're probably going, well, Paul's point's obvious. He's, he's, he has said there's no God but one. He said for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things. We exist through him. One Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things. We exist through him. So he's and, – and in modern translations such as the New American Standard, it says even if there are so-called gods – as there are many gods and many lords. There are many things that are called gods and lords. But for us, we know there's only one God, and however, verse 7, not all men have this knowledge. Realize that especially if you're talking to a Mormon missionary, um, the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is not going to be something in his mind. That's not going to be something that he is at all, in any way, um, conversant with. Okay, that's, that's the first thing. So he just sees phrases and trying to deal with the Bible in a meaningful fashion with people who just see phrases can be some of the most challenging and frustrating things you can, you can attempt to do. But the point is, there are many Mormons will say, well, the Bible says there are many gods and many lords. And you have to be prepared to go, yes, there were many gods and many lords in Corinth, but they were not true gods. They were not true lords. They are so-called, those that are called gods. And in fact, legomenoi, uh, the Greek term that is used there in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, um, would be more than appropriately, you know, with a print, with, with quotation marks, scare marks, scare, scare quotes, if you want to put it that way. So-called gods that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth. And being able to explain that to someone can be very, very useful. But here's the issue. Anyone who goes out and witnesses to Mormons... It has already been already been aware of this, already been aware of this text, has already run into it, had to explain it, things like that. The danger that I certainly have seen over the years um, is the fact that uh, when we have a particular text that is misused and abused by either cults and isms, other religions outside of Christianity where they're making arguments against us, or even people who are Christians but have sub-biblical or aberrant beliefs in certain areas. The human tendency for all of us is to interpret a text of Scripture so that we can protect 
what may even be an orthodox theology from false understandings and beliefs. But that's not necessarily the same thing as accurately exegeting the text ourselves. And so I can tell you that I even memorized texts of Scripture as a young person, just getting into dealing with all these issues. Um, and though I memorized the, the, the text, I actually did not accurately understand how that text was related to the context around it. That's one of the, again, one of the problems with the type of memorization we do, where honestly, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form discouraging anybody from memorizing Scripture, but we need to be aware of the fact that normally when we memorize Scripture, we are memorizing a sentence, maybe, maybe even just a portion of a sentence. We rarely memorize a paragraph, but most of us would, would, would recognize that when you're reading great literature or something, a single paragraph exists within a much wider context. And so I'm not discouraging memorization, just recognition that when you do memorize, be aware that you're memorizing something that has something that went before it and something that goes after it. And it's really important to know what those things are and how that is relevant to the proper handling of that, of that particular text. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians 8, when we, when we see what it, what it says, um, it's, it's easy for us to go, okay, I need to be able to explain what legomenoi means, and I need to talk about gods and lords, and, and then I've got this verse 6, and there's, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things we exist through him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things we exist through him. And so I've, I've got the Unitarians, who will come along and they'll say, see, there's, there's only one God. And that's making a distinction between the one God and Jesus. And so Jesus can't be God. And so I have to go, yeah, but it also says there's one Lord, but you would say that God is Lord of Lords. You would say that he is Lord. And so you're, you're not being fair to the text and, and all those apologetic things are fine and good and proper and yay and all that. But, but none of that can replace starting off with a serious exegesis of the text in its context. In fact, I would say that if there was one thing that I would change in how I did scripture memorization as a young person. And it's a lot easier to do it as a young person than as an older person. Let me assure you, the brain just doesn't work that well. Ask Rich. We just, we just saw that uh, happening just a few minutes ago um, with the, the oatmeal thing. Um, but uh, I would try to find a way in the memorization of a text to have some kind of context marker 
that I would memorize along with the verse. It might cut down the number of verses you can memorize, but uh, that would be the one thing I would try to find a way to, so as to avoid the piecemeal approach to text of Scripture and to know how any verse I was dealing with dealt with the text around it. Because... That would help you to avoid. Remember how I've, I've I've talked about for years using the words of Peter, always being ready to give a defense of the faith, yet with gentleness and reverence. And I've made an entire sermon out of talking about how I used that key text inappropriately for decades, not wrongly but not fully contextually either, and missing really important elements of it. And and I, I think that's an accusation I could make against the vast majority of apologists. Every apologist knows that text, every single one. But I've never heard anyone else, to be honest with you, never heard any other apologist point out the Old Testament background to what Peter is saying and then go back and look at it and go, look, if we were consistent, then what Peter's talking about here is Yahweh. And so what does it mean to treat him as holy? Because that's coming straight out of Isaiah. I've never heard anybody talk about it. Honestly, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's not like I sit around listening to a whole lot of sermons, um, but I've never heard anyone else uh, talking about that, or at least anyone who I hadn't myself influenced and hence emphasized that particular aspect of it. So memorizing something in context really, really helps. And when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what many people miss is if you you see it on the screen there, you'll see in the in the Greek down here, uh, where I'm making it pop around. Um, in the Greek down here, verse 6 is set apart as poetry. It's set apart as poetry here. So you, you notice the, the indented lines. And so, um, but we unto God the Father, we are uh, to us, heis theos, one God, hapater, the Father, from whom, tapanta, kai hemais, we, ais auton, we, to him, kai heis kurios, Jesus Christos, one Lord, Jesus Christ, diu, normally dia, but you, uh, Greek doesn't like to put long lines of vowels together, unlike certain languages that think that's fun. Di hu tapanta, Kai hemais di autu. So the same prepositions you used here, uh, through whom is tapanta, same tapanta as 1 Corinthians 8 6. I'm sorry, the preceding phrase uh, regarding God the Father, tapanta. Through whom is tapanta, and we, same thing, through him, and in the first phrase, it's unto him. And so you have a, a poetic, or at least in the opinion 
of the editors. A poetic text here. Is it is it a creed? Is it part of a hymn? Um, the the assumption being made is that it's one of those two things. And when you look carefully at it, it all of a sudden jumps out at you and grabs hold of you if you're sensitive to the Hebrew scripture echo that you always must be looking for in the New Testament and especially must be extremely sensitive to in the Apostle Paul who is, when you think about it, Paul is at this point um, regularly debating the Jews in public, demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ. He is outside of what we would call the boundaries of Israel, and therefore what text is he utilizing? What, what is he arguing from? He is arguing from this. The Greek Septuagint. Now, does he know the Hebrew Scriptures? Of course he does. But it may have even, you know, I, I never actually pondered this question. We're going to ponder something together here. Um, how available would the Hebrew text have been to Paul after his conversion? Because pre-conversion, he would have had access in the synagogues to the scrolls. Because remember, you know, we I look back here and I have a whole thing worth of you know, I've got my, eh. wow, one of my real old, which edition, wow, it's got my, uh, I'm to have to show Kelly that. That's a sweet inscription from Kelly. Um, this goes back, which, which edition, I think this is probably, it's probably 26th, I would imagine. Uh, my arms aren't quite long enough to, to get to it, but this is one of the very first ones I had bound. Yeah, this is this is a, a 26th from 1970, uh, 81, 81. So, uh, you know, I don't know how many Nessialan texts I have. There's a tw- uh, 28th back there. I've got 27th uh, here, there, and everywhere. And that's just what we're accustomed to. But that's not how things worked in the ancient world. And so pre-conversion... Uh, Paul would have had access to those scriptures as a uh, well-known Pharisee within the context of the Jewish community. But once he became known as Paul, um, what would he have had access to? And then once he's outside of Israel, the primary people to whom he is, when he's going into synagogues, Okay, he could say, well, let's get the scroll of such and such out. But 99% of the people in the room are reading this. 
not the Hebrew. They're, they're not Hebrew speakers. And maybe the farther you get from Israel, even the leadership, this is what they're using. Um, interesting, interesting to ask, to, to, especially once he's arrested. Do you have any idea how large scrolls of the entirety of the Old Testament would be? Sorry, Roman soldiers aren't going to be going, yeah, go ahead and grab his bags. <laughs> you know, that's, that's got the wheels on him. Um, no, he's not going to have access to that stuff. Now, how much would have, of it would he have memorized? Good question. Good question. But the people to whom he's speaking have a written text. And it's this. Uh, which raises all sorts of fascinating Issues, and in fact, in one of the texts we're going to look at, maybe look at, the way I'm going, may not get to it this time around, maybe hold it off for the next one. Um, that actually is important, and uh, we may do some speculation on that as well as we're, as we're moving along. But the point is, if you are reading this, if you have the Greek Septuagint... Man, is it just my eyes, or am I just getting that old? Um, man, live. Don't blame me for your sitting out there and not remembering what an RSS feed is. I know what an RSS feed is. You didn't, I, I don't know what you were talking about. I, th- I, was, t- I was thinking about the studio over there. I, I'm, I'm like, what? Huh? Yeah, three-letter acronyms. That's too many of them. Sure, go ahead and make all the excuses you want. I, I see you doing that on Twitter, even as we're, as as we're as I'm speaking here. So, um, so here it is. It's uh, page two ninety-seven. If you happen to have this edition of the uh, Ralph's uh, Greek Septuagint, um, Deuteronomy six four. Deuteronomy chapter six verse four. Most of us know this, but you're, you're familiar with the Hebrew. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. But that's the Hebrew. What is the Greek? Well, it's on the... I can... Well, here. Oops, that's not the right one. No, that's not it. There we go. Put it up on the screen for you. If you would like, it's right there, but uh, and that's a lot easier to read than this, but just verifying it here. Uh, Akue Israel Kurias Hathayas Hemon Kurias Hais Esten. Nice short little phrase, nice sentence actually. Here, Israel Kurias Hathayas Hemon Kurias, the Lord is our God, Kurias Hais Esten, the Lord is one. We all know what it is. It is the Shema, because in the Hebrew, uh, it begins Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Here, it's the commandment. Here, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh. Notice right there, there's Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is Echad, is one. Yahweh is one. So, you have the identification of the one true God as Yahweh. 
the identification of the people of Israel as belonging to Yahweh, and the assertion that Yahweh is Echad, one. And so, when you see the key terms, Kurios, Thaos, Heis, and then you go back to what we have here in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, here's Thaos, here's Heis, here's Kurios, and what should, before anything else, now I say should, is that, I don't mean morally should or something like that, but, but in the ideal situation, the first thing that should catch our attention is not how a Mormon missionary is going to mess this thing up. And not how a Unitarian is going to mess this, this up. That's, that is my mindset. I confess right here and now. I cannot help but when I am reading these texts to go, to, my mind is running a subroutine. How might someone misuse this? And it, and it comes from, you know, sitting in a debate with a Unitarian and he's reading a text. And what's my mind doing? My mind's going, how is he going to use this? I'm, I'm trying to stay ahead of him. I'm trying to, you know, anticipate. That's how apologist minds work, but we have to, in a disciplined fashion, try to control that. And so, uh, the first thing that should pop into our mind as we're reading 1 Corinthians 8, especially if it's set off as poetry or something, that's almost always the editor's way of saying, hey, there's something in the background here that you might want to be looking at. But the first thing should be, hey, this is, this is the language of the Shema. This is the language of the prayer that identified the very Jewish people as the people of Yahweh. This is, there's a whole section, I don't have it in here with me right now, but there's a whole section in the Mishnah, a whole tractate in the Mishnah, about when, how, why, to quote the Shema on a daily basis. You know, how you can, when you should, when you shouldn't, da, 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 all this, this stuff, because the Shema is a, um, a definitional aspect of the Jewish faith. And so we look at Paul's use, and would he know it in Hebrew? Well, of course he did. But did he know it in Greek? Of course he did. And so, how can you look at a text like this and not go, Paul's doing this purposely? Or was it Paul? See, if you, if you, if you don't sit back and, and consider, huh, if this is in poetic form, this could be a creedal statement, this could be a hymn fragment that might predate Paul. If this predates Paul's entrance into the church, then that means from the start, you had the highest possible Christology. Because think about it. 
think about what what 1 Corinthians 8, 6 does. It takes the, the definitional, identifying, setting Israel apart text from Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, and opens it up and expands it. Who has the right to do that? I mean, think, just think for, and if you do Jewish evangelism, you already know this is, this is as presuppositionally a part of the thinking of the Jewish person that you can't do this as the rejection of the incarnation is presuppositional to the Muslim rejection of Christianity. And for many of the same reasons. So, knowing what Paul's background is, and by the way, do you notice something about 1 Corinthians 8? Paul does not, what, what's, the, where, what's the very next verse? However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. He doesn't stop and say, oh, by the way, let me talk to you about this Trinity thing about this deity of Christ thing. He does not even stop. He is not, in verse 6, trying to introduce some new theological concept. The very way he does this, just like in Philippians chapter 2, the whole Carmen Christi is not his point. It's a sermon illustration. In both of them, what we see is what was the common understanding of the Christian people that Paul can then reach out and grab an example of and make his point. These people already understood their theology. They already understood what the apostolic message was about this person named Jesus. So he doesn't have to stop and say, I'm teaching you some new thing. That this was, they had already been taught this. They already understood what First Corinthians eight six was. They they've already got this down pat, and that's why he can just simply use it, and say, "See, not all men have this knowledge." But he has literally taken the Shema, or if it wasn't him, someone before him. Whatever the time frame, this is absolutely primitive. And you say, why are you emphasizing this so much? Because if you go almost anywhere, they're going to tell you that this stuff developed way down the line, way after the disciples. Remember I've told you the story when uh, Daniel Kirk, Dr. Kirk, used to teach Fuller, doesn't anymore, uh, was debating Bob Gagnon in Scottsdale, and he made that comment about Jesus being a first century Jew. We've got we've to be ready and willing to think past first century Judaism. Remember that? And I went up to him and I asked him about the deity of Christ and what he said to me is, you don't think the disciples thought Jesus was God, do you? Well, here's one disciple and if this predates Paul, if this isn't Paul's um, expression, it could be, even if it is Paul's, we're talking about 
the middle of the first century. We're talking about in the lives of all the eyewitnesses, in the lives of all of the disciples, uh, in those first few decades after the resurrection. And if it predates Paul, it goes back to the same decade as the resurrection. That's how primitive it is, how early it is. It's not some later development. Now, is there development of language later on to answer questions? Of course there is. There has to be. But the the belief itself is unbelievably early, right here in the text. And we don't see it if we're not sensitive to the echoes from the Hebrew scriptures, if we're not sensitive to the context of what Paul's doing, to the flow of the thought of what he's doing in this text. And when we come to a text, when we are brought to a text by a false teacher, when we're brought to a text by a false use, and let's be honest, that's how a lot of us end up at tech, end up at certain texts and paying special attention to certain texts. I mean, how many who deal with Mormons had to first, for the first time, delve into James 2.20 because the Mormons brought them there? Not because you had heard a great sermon that showed the consistency of James 2.10 and following, especially the specific pericope 2.14 through 24 and you know, that's, you may have heard a sermon like that, but if you had never really been pushed to be consistent about it, you may have never given it second thought. And the scary thing is, the, the thing that I've experienced in my own life is, when you're brought that way, it's very easy to come up with an interpretation that works and then assume that that's pretty much all there is to it. And very frequently it's not. And, to be honest with you, sometimes answers that work on the street corner are not the best exegetical answers that there are. And sometimes the best exegesis is pretty difficult to communicate on the street corner. So what are you going to do then? Hero, because for a lot of folks, it's, it's very pragmatic. Hey, if it works, run with it, even if it's not necessarily totally accurate. I've told that story before, too. Remember the minister that asked me to look up a, look up a text? I did. I wrote a paper up for him. He had a certain interpretation he had read in the commentary. I was like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fly. And yet when he preached a couple weeks later, that's what he preached. And he didn't even deal with the objections, didn't even deal with the problems that I pointed out in the paper. But then when he saw me next time, he just put his head down, because he wasn't going to try to defend it, just put his head down and said, yeah, but it, it preaches so good. It preaches so good. Unfortunately, that happens a lot, and it shouldn't. It simply shouldn't. We shouldn't be going there, but, but we do. Anyway, so these... These echoes and fulfillments, this, this knowing the Hebrew scriptures, 
And I, I think it's one of the greatest uh, weaknesses in modern church. I, I sense this in, in and of myself. I should know the, the Hebrew scriptures better than I do. And I was just thinking of how stunned I was when I, and I may have even forgotten it, had to relearn it later, when I realized that the Russian Synodal Bible, the Russian translation of the Old Testament, of the, um, yeah, the Old Testament, gives no indication in its translation when it's translating the Tetragrammaton. In other words, when you read the Old Testament, you see L-O-R-D in caps, O-R-D, smaller size, font size, but in, in capital form. At least you know that somehow in that text, the Tetragrammaton exists, Yahweh, the name of Yahweh. But in the Russian Synodal Bible, no indication. When I think of how many New Testament texts are functionally impacted by needing to have that information in the mind, I just go, wow, that's, that, that's, that's scary. And because it, it has, it has impact. It really, really does have an impact. And so we look at a text like this and behind all this, believe it or not, which we'll get into, I'm not going to try to cram into seven minutes the, the next text, but when we look at texts about the Incarnation, texts about the God-man, and this is a text about the God-man, almost every... I'll, I'll go ahead and say every single one for obvious reasons, but almost every single one obviously is dependent upon the fact that we're looking at a document in the New Testament, if it's talking about the revelation of what has happened in the Incarnation, that is deeply uh, influenced by the language of this, the Greek Septuagint. And so we need to know those things. At the same time, one of the texts we'll look at next time, Lord willing. Beautiful text, important text, doesn't exist in this. It's a text you and I both know. How can I be so mean as to do that? Let me just show you something. Just to, just to, you, you, I'll look at it. Don't have time to go through it all. But I want you to be aware of it and maybe be thinking about it. Isaiah 9. Um, is, there not, is there not an argument to be made that Handel was divinely inspired when he, when he penned the words? Not when he wrote Isaiah 9, but when he took the text of Isaiah 9, and, and put it to music in the Messiah. It's just gorgeous. Uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I mean, just, oh, it, it, it gives you goosebumps. But the fact is that when you compare the Hebrew 
and the Greek, there is a major difference, which might explain why Isaiah 9-6 is not central to the New Testament's presentation of who Jesus is. That's... There, there, there are a lot of people who go, that makes me uncomfortable, I, I know, but um, deal with it. <laughs> it's amazing when, when people, I, I don't think you should talk about uncomfortable subjects. Well, look, when, you, when we look at the names of this child who will be born, a son who will be given, and his name will be called Pele Yoates. And there's arguments about this should just simply be wonderful, comma, counselor, comma. But then you have El Gabor, Mighty God, Aviad, one phrase I think is interesting, Eternal Father or Father of Eternity, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Now, if you're familiar with the program that I have up, this is called Accordance, you'll notice that these particular modules are tagged. And so when I move the cursor through this, in the Hebrew, it's showing us what's over in, in the Greek as well, and then over in English when, when it can't. But you'll notice that when I was down here, for example, with in some of these, it that shows something in the English, but not in Hebrew. In the, in the Greek, right. And that's because when we look over here, um, because a child will be born to us, huyas, a son will be given to us. So, at this point, the, the Septuagint is translating the same two Hebrew verbs that we have. Nathan is properly translated uh, by the Greek here, which is different than born, yulad, versus ganao. Uh, and the, the government uh, will be upon his shoulder. That works. His name shall be called, and that's where all of a sudden everything changes. Megales could be translated as Pele, uh, wonderful or great. Bules, I suppose you could get to Yoates with that, in a, in a sense. Angelos. Angelos is in place of El Gabor. Now, is that one phrase? It's, it's marked that way by the editors. And then it gets different after that. In fact, let me see if I can um, see if I have... I'm not sure if I can pull it up quickly enough, but uh, I have... There it is. So the NETS, 
which is a English translation of the Septuagint, because a child was born for us, a son also given to us, whose sovereignty was upon his shoulders, and he is named messenger of great counsel. For I will bring peace upon the rulers, peace and health to him. Is the NETS translation of the Greek. Uh, it's good to have the nets at times. Um, I don't always agree with its translation, but it's it's pretty a pretty much a formal equivalency translation, so it's fairly easy to use. Um, so you have a different tradition, even though the beginning of the verse clearly is identical. Now, remember, we have the Isaiah scroll. So we know that the Hebrew text, including El Gabor, is pre-Christian. And it is interesting, one of the accusations that Jewish apologists always make is that Christians change the Septuagint to make it more useful to them in debating with the Jews. Why does the Septuagint read this way at Isaiah 9-6? If they're going to be changing something, this would be what, what you'd want to change. But they didn't. So why is there a difference? Those are some of the issues that come up when we look at one of the key texts, absolutely key texts, in the discussion of the Incarnation is Isaiah 9. It really is. That was not what I intended to do today. I was actually going to go through the prologue of John and then get to that. Didn't do any of that. But we'll, we'll expand out some more on that uh, the next time on, uh, on the program as it is. So there you go. Hopefully, a lot, of, a lot of you just really do enjoy biblically-based study dividing lines, and some don't. Well, you, we try to do a little bit of everything. Actually, we just do what I want to do, um, pretty much, um, and go from there. <laughs> because if I, if I was trying to get a big audience, I wouldn't be wearing my Kuji. But it's nice and it's nippy today. It, it actually got – it was – when I got in the car this morning, it was cold. It was, it was nice. Cold for us is in the mid-40s, okay? So some of the rest of you are like, that's our high today. Well, I, I get it. I hear you. But we're just thankful here in – in Arizona to be not in the 90s because we were 10 days ago. So I'm I'm thankful. I'm thankful. All right. Um, I I think I think we're going to try Monday. Yeah, we're going to try Monday, even though I'm going to be that's going to be tough to do. Uh, we're we're, we're going to go for Monday, and that's that it. That's it for the week because I will be in St. Charles, Lord willing. Uh, Oh, Tuesday and Thursday? Okay. Thursday and Tuesday. So the following Thursday and then the following Tuesday, we will have a guest host uh, in for you. And uh, so uh, keep watch on the on the feed and set up an RSS feed, too, <laughs> which Rich will tell you about, though he may not remember what it is as he attempts to talk to you about it. So that's, that's something he'll never forget now is he'll always remember... Because someone's going to figure out a way of making RSS mean something rich, surely something. Uh, to So rich, surely stump, rich, surely stumbled RSS. 
That so so there you there you. <laughs> we can, you've got your hand right on the button. You're ready to go. So I should probably go too. Thanks for watching today. We'll see you next time. God bless.